I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hi, listeners. It's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name, and as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. This is part two of our intro series, Stuff You Should Know 
which will cover some background and context into the life and times of Shakespeare, because art is influenced by the world around it, you know? In this episode, we'll be covering some basic information about the Elizabethan era and the Elizabethan theater. First, let's talk about Elizabethan England. The Elizabethan era was the period in England during Queen Elizabeth I's reign, starting in 1558. During this era, society was rapidly changing as England had exited the medieval era and settled into the British Renaissance. London, in particular, shifted drastically. A stable Europe expanded trade and commerce for English merchants and, thus, mercantilism was embraced. Mercantilism is the economic theory that profitable trade creates wealth. It's often regarded as an early form of capitalism. The rise of mercantilism put the centuries-old medieval feudal system in an incredibly vulnerable position. At the start of the Tudor dynasty, feudalism was beginning to crumble. Feudalism is a combination of legal, economic, military, and cultural customs that structured society around the holding of land in exchange for service or labor. In a feudal system, the monarch is the absolute ruler of all land and, since there was so much land, would divvy it up to loyal nobles, knights, and vassals. Those loyal nobles, knights, and vassals would then divvy up their portion to other loyal nobles, knights, and vassals until it's broken down enough that it's manageable. The nobles were subtenants who cared for the land in the name of the monarch. This is also how English families got land and titles. But nobles didn't work the land themselves. Peasants were brought on to work in harsh and restrictive conditions in which they worked but owned nothing themselves. Some peasants were free from this system, but many weren't. The feudal system ripped many of their agency. So by Elizabeth I's reign, we had, for the most part, left feudalism behind and were in a mercantile society that created wealth and commerce to a growing merchant class in cities like London. More wealth and more commerce created more jobs, so Brits were leaving the country for opportunities in the city in great numbers. London quadrupled in population from 50,000 in 1520 to 200,000 in 1600, and London saw a rise in urbanization. London was the epicenter of the British Renaissance, whose height was the Elizabethan era. Historians depict this period as a golden age in English history, and Shakespeare was alive and working in public theater houses during this golden age. But what was it like for Londoners during the era? The philosophy of individualism, which comes from humanism, was rising amongst artists, inventors, and subjects alike. Individualism and the wealth from mercantilism brought a demand for new markets like art, literature, and theater. The newly established merchant class wanted to flaunt their wealth and show off to society. Fashion was inspired by France and Spain. Hoop skirts for women and clean white stockings for men. Men and women both wore starched ruffles to keep fabrics clean during an era when hygiene was not prioritized. There was an interest in portrait painting, lockets for beloveds, books from the Bible to medicinal books to travel books, as well as leisure activities like gambling, sports, and theater. But not everything was peachy keen in Elizabethan England. While the merchant class rose, not everyone could rise out of their born social class. Poverty and poor living conditions were really common in London. Rapid population growth led to great economic instability. Under the Tudors, rents tended to rise and wages to decline. The rich and poor became polarized. Around a third of Tudor subjects lived in poverty, and social services didn't exist at the time, so the wealthy were expected to pay alms to the impotent poor who couldn't work. 
but Elizabethan society had little sympathy for the able-bodied unemployed. Vagabond laws were created during this era and included punishments like whipping and the stocks. The idea of a workhouse for the able-bodied poor was first suggested in 1576. Another tension in Tudor England was religious freedom. The country fluctuated between Catholicism and Protestantism. The law of the land was such that the monarch controlled England's religion, so whenever a monarch switched religions, that became the official religion of the Church of England. Subjects were then forced to switch religions. If they didn't, they'd be charged with heresy. But many devout Brits didn't want to switch. This unrest led to many acts of violence in the name of religious freedom. There was temporary peace during Shakespeare's lifetime due to the passage of the Elizabethan religious settlement. Elizabeth reverted the Church of England back to Protestantism, but she and Parliament tried to create diplomacy through the settlement. The settlement's act of supremacy lowered her title from the supreme ruler of the Church of England to the governess. It also repealed heresy laws. And the settlement's act of uniformity allowed some Catholic traditions to remain, even though England was Protestant. It wasn't perfect. It did have opposition, but it did hold the peace for some time. One last factor of Elizabethan life was public health. London was an incredibly dirty city during this period. Health problems and illnesses for Elizabethans were linked to sanitation. The life expectancy of an Elizabethan was around 42, or lower for urban poor. There were open sewers in the streets filled with garbage and human waste. Waste was dumped into the nearest river. Diseases were spread because of fleas, lice, and rats. There was no running water. Physicians also simply had no idea what caused the terrible illnesses and diseases of the age. Medicine was basic, and popular medical practices included bloodletting and leeching. The worst was when there would be an outbreak of bubonic plague. This happened a few times during Shakespeare's life and terrified Brits. The 1592 through 1593 plague had a direct impact on Shakespeare when it closed all of the theaters in England. There was also an outbreak of the plague from 1603 to 1610 that resulted in roughly 60 months of closures. While in isolation, it is said Shakespeare wrote Antony and Cleopatra, Macbeth, and King Lear. He might have written others throughout patches of bubonic plague, and this experience had a lasting effect on his writing because he also references plagues and illnesses quite frequently. So I don't know about you, but starting a Shakespeare podcast during a pandemic of our own gives me a little bit of hope that theater came back. It survived. And unlike the Elizabethans, we are going to have a vaccine. So that makes me very hopeful about the return of theater. Yeah. In case anybody didn't do like the mental math, seven years is 84 months. So out of those only 24, only two years worth of months, you were able to be in a theater. So so it'll get back. And I mean, luckily, one popular recreational activity for an Elizabethan was the theater. There wasn't anything refined about Elizabethan or Jacobean theater. Elizabethan theaters were competing with each other for audiences and they were competing with other leisure activities like cockfighting, bear baiting, hunting, or gambling. In order to attract audiences, theaters sold cheap tickets and wrote content for all levels of society. Shakespeare wrote beautiful poetry and was highbrow, but he got accustomed to incorporating body humor after dramatic scenes to keep his audiences happy. Now, when I say body, I realize that people will be listening to this so they can't see the spelling, but this isn't 
B-O-D-Y, like the human body. It's B-A-W-D-Y, like raunchy. Like sex jokes and other unseemly things. Yes. It's more like Adam Sandler jokes or like your Melissa McCarthy in Bridesmaids. That's B-A-W-D-Y. And if Shakespeare's audiences weren't happy, the actors would be pelted with missiles like tomatoes. And actors are not revered like our Hollywood starlets of today. In fact, actors and theater makers were considered low status. This new profession of acting was only decades old and only happened with the emergence of the public theater. Prior to the public theater, actors worked in a household troupe for a Tudor family and would entertain their guests in the home or travel with the family and entertain their hosts. An established company of players had a repertoire of six or seven plays and were versatile enough to adapt old work to new circumstances, similar to the players in Hamlet. Other troops performed at fairs or courtyards. Theater troops had strict laws placed upon them, so it was often safer to be part of a household troupe. There was a lot of anti-theater rhetoric from authorities who feared unruly assembly. Tudor acts ordered harsh punishment for unlicensed performing, which included vagabond laws that targeted traveling actors. But the vagabond laws had an unintentional consequence. The laws sped up the establishment of professional actors when some professional actors built permanent theaters. So that would be um, Burbage and the theater. Yeah, it didn't happen in a separate building that you went to to go to the theater. The theater came to you from medieval pageant wagons, which was basically like a town parade doing scene by scene on different floats and going through town stop by stop to the household troops. And then all of a sudden, someone got the great idea. Burbage got the great idea to make a building that people could go to. When public theaters emerged in great size around the 1570s, writers worked together to produce plays by a division of labor. Their aim was to build their repertoire so as to become self-sufficient. Successful companies became joint stock companies, whose members bought a share of the company in order to support their interests. Then, the actor shareholders purchased plays, hired additional players, and negotiated with the authorities. A successful company could have eight sharers, a wardrobe master or tireman, a bookkeeper in charge of copies of the plays, upwards of six boy apprentices, a pool of actors to draw on, musicians, stagehands, box office staff, also called gatherers, scribes, and so on. Shakespeare was a member of a troupe called the Chamberlain's Men, who performed at the Globe Theater. All theaters were required to be licensed by a member of the aristocracy. Theirs was the Lord Chamberlain. Other popular theaters of that era include The Curtain, the Rose, the Swan, and the Fortune. A handful of public houses, like the Globe, were on the River Thames. Most were designed in the shape of an O. They were open air, so plays were produced during the daytime, from May to October, rain or shine. A flag would fly to show a play would be performed that day. The stage was raised with a false ceiling called the quote-unquote heavens. Traps were cut into the stage floor and led to quote-unquote hell. There was a large double door center stage and two exits, one stage right and one stage left. The audience sat or stood around three quarters of the stage. There was a balcony for actors or musicians to perform on. Sometimes wealthy audience members sat up on the balcony so as to be seen by the audience. The sets were minimalistic. All costumes were contemporary Elizabethan clothing. And women were not permitted to take part in the theater, so roles of women and girls were played by adolescent boys or young men. Now, 
I do want to say that's not that there weren't women actors at the time. They just could not be professional. So they would maybe be, you know, putting on plays in their own houses or acting things at bars, but not in the professional theater at this time. Also, fun fact, Shakespeare was said to use the phrases enter dressed resembling a girl or enter dressed as girl in his plays as notes for male actors, which later evolved into drag. I had no idea. Isn't that cool? As for how the actors prepared for shows, scripts were presented line by line for the actors. During rehearsals, you received a piece of paper with your cue line so you know when to go on stage, as well as your lines in the scene. But no actor had a full script during this time period. Paper was expensive, printing was expensive, and there were always rewrites, even on the day of the show. So it didn't make sense to write a whole script by hand for every actor. So if that's the case... How did we get Shakespeare's full plays? Well, seven years after his death, two of his actor friends managed to find and collect all the plays and publish them as the first folio of 1623. And you'll hear people refer to folio versus quarto, how Shakespeare's works were originally printed. Folio is bigger. It's literally if you take a piece of paper and fold it in half. Quarto is if you take that half piece of paper and fold it again. Uh, so quartos were smaller, they were cheaper to produce, and folios were more expensive. It's like the equivalent of like a hardback copy versus a paperback copy of the same play. At the Globe, wealthy audience members could sit in a box seat, while poorer audiences could buy a penny ticket in the standing room space in front of the stage. Those crowded standing room audience members were called penny stinkers, until Shakespeare coined the term groundlings, after the word for small fish. During performances, audiences would stand tightly in the crowd, stare up, and maybe have their mouths open agape while watching the show, looking like small fish. Groundlings were a rowdy bunch. Also, orange girls went around the groundling section selling oranges, hazelnuts, beer, and sometimes themselves. It's a lot more like a modern sports experience. Like I think about like when I go see football or when I go to a baseball game in person and there's like somebody walking around selling concessions. That's not at all how the Globe operates to this day. When I went and saw shows there, you are still standing in a crowd with other audience members looking up at the actors, but everyone's quiet, paying attention. You're not buying beer. You're not getting visits from orange girls. So it's very different. And I think that comes from the evolution of how we think about Shakespeare. But like, just because Elizabethan and Jacobian public theaters were rowdy does not mean they weren't producing plays worth attending and paying attention to. Playhouses were constantly towing the line between writing political dramas with discourse on matters of the state and not being shut down by unhappy authorities. Any criticism of powerful people could have dangerous consequences for theater makers. There was strict dramatic censorship that motivated playwrights towards metaphor in their plays. And if you don't know the history of the period, it's hard to spot the coded meanings as a contemporary audience member. The Chamberlain's men did engage in factional politics. This practice reached a climax in 1601 when they performed Richard II on the eve of the Essex's abortive rebellion. That was an unsuccessful rebellion to overthrow Elizabeth I. Now, Richard II is a play about a deposed king, so the performance didn't please Her Majesty or the court. The theater claimed the performance was not to encourage the overthrow of Elizabeth, but to save her from the plotting evil counselors. Whether the court believed them or not, their theater was under stricter surveillance during the last years of Elizabeth's reign. Elizabethan theater can be seen as a unifying space for Elizabethan subjects. Social class didn't restrict your ability to see a play. 
and playwrights wrote to entice everybody to attend. You were influenced by what was happening on the stages just as theater makers were influenced by what was happening in London. And that's it for part two. We have one episode left in our three-part Stuff You Should Know intro series. And in part three, we look at the man himself, William Shakespeare. And if you haven't yet, you should go back and listen to part one, where we look at the monarchy and the British Renaissance. This will help contextualize William Shakespeare's life during a changing England. So go back and catch up if you haven't yet. If not, we hope you'll join us next time. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone? Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash ShakespeareAnyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's shakespeareany and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Cymbeline, Act 5, Scene 5, spoken by Cymbeline. Live and ask of Cymbeline what boon thou wilt, fitting my county and thy state. I'll give it yea, though thou do demand a prisoner, the noblest taken.